All right, shall we? Sure. sure. We hit go on the stopwatch. Welcome to Why Not Change the World, the RPI podcast, where we bring together leading experts who are tackling pressing issues from different angles. I'm your host, Reeve Hamilton, and on this episode, we're talking about Alzheimer's disease and cutting-edge research. I'm joined by Deepak Vashish, Director of the Center for Biotechnology and Interdisciplinary Studies at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. Hi, Reeve. Uh, happy to be here. Thanks for being here. And Mariana Figueroa, the Director of the Lighting Research Center at Rensselaer. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Thank you both for joining us. And now you both do research related to the treatment of Alzheimer's disease, but you come at it from very different angles and from angles that some people might be surprised to hear about. So could you sort of uh, both fill me in on what you do? Maybe, Mariana, starting with you. Sure. Um, Yeah, we we come in at uh, what we call the non-pharmacological intervention angle, where we use light as a way to help Alzheimer's disease patients sleep better, improve mood, and improve behavior. So we're more on the treating the symptoms than treating the disease. Um, And obviously there is no cure for Alzheimer's, so there's a lot of people with Alzheimer's um, that have the symptoms, and one of the worst symptoms they have is this lack of a consolidated rest activity rhythm or consolidated sleep-wake cycle. Um, So what we're doing with light, uh, we're treating that, or at least we're helping them sleep better, which has been shown to have uh, numerous positive outcomes. And Deepak, what are you working on? So um, my training is in working on bone, and one could ask what has bone to do with brain. Uh, Only thing we know is the term bonehead. (laughs) (laughs) So um, thinking about uh, brain, um, you know, we came to this uh, approach Uh, of trying to link two different systems. So there is the brain and there is bone. And then one can ask what has bone to do with brain and vice versa. So if you go back into skeletal evolution and general evolution in general, um, cognition has been synonymous with vertebrates. And yet nobody has looked into in a larger sense that how does the vertebra or the skeletal system affects brain because they both develop simultaneously. So we started asking that question that can bone affect brain? And uh, once we figure that relationship out, if one exists and we're working on that part, how do we capitalize on that relationship to understand Alzheimer's that what may possibly go wrong? And there are studies around which are coming up which have been showing that uh, bones may have a lot to do with the brain development and even with Alzheimer's. Well, and both of these, both coming at it from the bone angle and the lighting angle strike me as maybe not the first thing that someone on the street might think of when they hear uh, the word Alzheimer's. So, Mariana, maybe could you explain how did you come to be working on this? How did you, how did you get drawn to lighting in the first place? Um, well, as we all, everyone working in lighting, we say that uh, your high school counsel will not tell you, you know, you should go to lighting. <laughs> Nobody will say that. You really come into lighting by accident, and, and I did it by accident too. Um, I'm an architect by training, and when I came to RPI, I was looking for a master's or a PhD program in the area of architecture, and I saw the Lighting Research Center, and I thought, oh, that's very interesting. I thought I was going to be doing lighting design, 
until I started working with research in lighting, and I really fell in love with it. And more, more to it, I fell in love with the impact that light has on our circadian rhythms. So I started understanding circadian rhythms, which are every rhythm in our body that repeats at approximately every 24 hours. For example, sleep-wake cycle, it's a great example of circadian rhythms. Um, and it's, uh, it, it is the, the major synchronizer of all our biological systems to the local position on Earth. And it, it's very powerful. So I became really interested. I started working with nurses in night shift uh, and trying to use light to help them maintain alertness during the night shift. And when I did my master's, I wasn't sleeping more than three hours in a row. And I saw how hard it is not to sleep. Um, so it really became a passion for me. And, um, and then I started trying to find applications that we could use light. And uh, one of the earliest applications I worked with was with Alzheimer's disease patients. And the first time I was in a nursing home, it had a huge impact on me. Um, and just being able to help them in, in such a simple way. You know, when I talk to people about what I do, they look at me and say, oh, that's really cool. I never thought about it. And I'm thinking, it is such a simple and yet such a, a powerful uh, tool that we can have because we're, you know, we have daylight uh, during the day every day, sunrises and sunsets, and we kind of take it for granted. Um, so I think that that, to me, was a big revelation. And I think people then say, oh, yes, that is really powerful. And they, they start understanding. So that's how we ended up working with Alzheimer's, and uh, we saw early on very, very good results, and that's where we started um, investing more time and effort in this area. Well, the the people that are affected by circadian rhythms and the sleep-wake cycle, that's not exclusive to Alzheimer's. No, it's not. It's everybody, from premature infants to older adults with Alzheimer's. And, you know, you think about your teenager, um, son or, or daughter that can't go to bed before 1 o'clock in the morning. That has to do with circadian rhythms. You think about... We're working now with cancer patients um, in the hospitals who spend two, three weeks in hospitals that have absolutely no robust light-dark pattern because we tend to have very dim, constant light in the built environment. Um, you have office workers um, that have no windows and that go to work in the dark, come back in the dark. You have seasonal depression. You have jet lag. Um, so there's so many applications um, that I think we, we use the Alzheimer's as sort of a a systems model in a way. You learn everything with Alzheimer's. If it works with Alzheimer's, it's probably going to work with all the other populations. Uh, Deepak, what drew you into this world? As you mentioned, you were in researching bone issues. So a couple things is one, uh, we were looking into bone and we were looking into diabetes. And if you look at some of the older literature, Alzheimer's has been described as type 3 diabetes. Hmm. And, and that was the link we wanted to explore, that what is the link between diabetes and Alzheimer's. And I have to thank Mariana for, for introducing me to that field. Uh, she had some very fabulous models, which were uh, manipulating multiple systems, including bones. So we got interested in looking at the effect of altered circadian rhythm with diabetes into bone. And then that led to the interest in Alzheimer's because it's one of a significant challenge of our time. Um, and uh, there is significant discussion uh, in the research community, especially the National Institutes of Health, as to how we can collectively address that situation. And I wear also the head of uh, directing the Center for Biotechnology, and the idea was that can we 
bring all the expertise we have in-house where people are working on different problems together to address Alzheimer's. So sort of bringing a new angle to Alzheimer's. And um, we formed an interdisciplinary research group. And uh, Mariana was, uh, was a big contributor to that, and she led that group. And uh, we all came together, looked at ways in which we can address the problem. And my interest came out of that. And we started trying to look at how we can enhance understanding of brain and Alzheimer's through what we know about bone. Yeah, and a, can a problem like Alzheimer's be solved without an interdisciplinary approach? I mean, that's something we talk about it here at Rensselaer quite a lot. Can you talk about what that has meant for your work? Um, instead of being in a silo, I guess, what is the benefit of interdisciplinary work? Sure. So I, I can give you sort of a, a, a rundown of how interdisciplinary it can get. <laughs> so, so, so we've uh, heard uh, the description from a, from a light and circadian rhythm point of view that how it may affect a person's cognitive ability and, and, and predisposition to Alzheimer's. But think of um, a very complex problem um, where a particular system may produce a protein which can then go through the gut and may get modified. And depending on the modification, it may act as a hormone. Then it passes through the bloodstream, goes through the blood-brain barrier into the brain to a receptor affecting a brain function. There are a lot of chances to that happening and not happening. There is a lot of data which is generated. There is a lot of uh, measurements which may need to be made, like whether somebody is, is uh, fully cognitively present or, or absent. And then, you know, you put it all together in a system where you can look at if we want to manipulate this process, can we come up with new therapeutics? So suddenly you've thrown in all sorts of discipline in there. And you may notice that I didn't bring in medicine yet. So this is not the clinical angle. This is all the preclinical part. So we can do all that kind of research. And I think the ecosystem at Rensselaer in particular has been very conducive to that kind of research, uh, which is the new polytechnic model which we approach where people are coming from very different disciplines. When we got together, and maybe Mariana can comment on that first, we, you know, half of the people said, we don't work in Alzheimer's. You know, why are we in this group? Um, you know, then we started talking and then came out, uh, you know, a lot of interesting projects. Uh, maybe you want to comment on that, Maria? Yeah, it's very interesting because um, to Deepak's point is that we, um, one of the first things that came out of it was um, the idea of writing a training grant. Um, and, the, and, you know, I have to give uh, National Institutes on Aging credit for that. They were looking at a training grant that would really bring different facets to the Alzheimer's disease research, and that included bring engineering to big data engineering, techniques that are not typically used in medicine to medicine. Because, you know, there is no cure for Alzheimer's. When you stop and think about it, you can get cure for cancer, but there is no cure for Alzheimer's. And the goal is by 2024, which is getting close, <laughs> but that the goal for NIH is that by 2024, there will be an Alzheimer's patient survivor. And I think that for us to be able to accomplish that, it, it has to come from that interdisciplinary group of people thinking differently with different skill sets, with different techniques that can be applied to the problem that we're trying to solve, which is can we 
come up with a cure for Alzheimer's. And I think, uh, you know, it is true that when we start talking about all the, the, the different skill sets that we have at Rensselaer, I mean, that was an ideal place, and that was one of the main reasons why it was awarded to us was because, you know, we were bringing in something very different to training grants that um, typically goes to medical schools. Yeah, I mean, that's one thing that's striking is that, I mean, Deepak mentioned that he did that whole list of things that we're working on that without even bringing medicine into it yet. Um, do, are people surprised when you guys talk to them? And uh, you talk about working at Rensselaer, which of course is the first technological university in the country, but we don't have a medical school. Um, how does that affect sort of perceptions about what you can and can't do? And, and are those right or wrong? So I, I think uh, the uh, the example of training ground with Mariana Barden is a, is a very interesting one because it almost tells the medical community that there is an alternative approach, which is very much embedded in science, which we can bring in to address Alzheimer's. And um, you know, one of the interesting examples, which is very translational uh, as well coming out of this work is, is Chunyu Wang's work, which has been funded by Warren Elpert Foundation. And he's been able to identify a novel compound, which is a potential drug target. Uh, for Alzheimer's, and that's a combination of uh, uh, people working from our uh, biological sciences department with faculty from chemical and biological engineering, and, and of course having some interesting uh, in vivo models to, to evaluate that. So, so within a short period, I think this approach has, has uh, been very successful and interesting. Yeah, I think um, I do a lot of work on the clinical area, um, so I, I literally work with patients, mm -hmm. um, Alzheimer's disease patients, and you're absolutely right. Uh, when I first started my tenure-track position, um, I had some people questioning whether I was going to make it or not because said, you're in an engineering school, you're doing work in you know, medicine, how, how can you make it? Um, and I think the key is collaboration. I think we, that's one thing that w we all do well here is the, the ability to collaborate. And we have collaborated with nursing schools, with medical schools. Um, we collaborate with physicians in the area. I mean, just, just practitioners that are in the capital district, we collaborate with them. They are the ones that help us um, find the, the, the population that we need to find. Um, so, you know, I think collaboration is the key, the fact that, and they see the benefit. They see that there's a, a, a new way to look at the problem, um, and they see it as a benefit to collaborate with us. So I think that's one way that we, we you know, went around the problem. Um, and it, it has worked so far. We have not had any issues with that. Right. And the lighting therapies that you've developed are in healthcare facilities, is my understanding. Correct. Correct. Um, and maybe that can sort of transition us into what does the future of Alzheimer's treatment and research look like? Um, I, I imagine some of those things that you've developed yeah, are involved. I, I, yeah, I, I have to say that the, our solutions are, are really nice because, they, first of all, they're non-pharmacological, so they can be used with any other treatment or any other drugs. Um, and that's the first, I think, the first thing. Um, and the second thing is that they're just obvious. You know, it's like even if you don't want to buy a new fixture or a new light bulb, you can go outdoors every day 
or you can sit by a window every day at the same time, and that's what you're getting in terms of the light. So it, it's, I think it, it is so simple that it's kind of like easy to take it for granted, which we all do. Um, and, and my really dream is that every hospital, every nursing home, every assisted living has that type of lighting just built in it um, without even thinking. You shouldn't be thinking about, do I need to go outdoors now? You, you should be receiving the light you need in the built environment, and people should be able to install that. It's almost like a, you know, you think about ergonomic chairs. Nobody questions whether you should have or you should not have ergonomic chairs in your office or a computer. Lighting should be the same thing. People shouldn't even question. You should just have it. Um, and hopefully that's what's going to happen. I think future of Alzheimer's is very much tied to future of human life as, as we are getting older and we have a, a large proportion of aging population. Um, we are looking at issues such as, as Alzheimer's and there are other diseases like osteoporosis and other things which will all are, are all happening in older age groups. And there is a movement out there which is pushing to characterize aging itself as a disease and to see can we treat aging, can we stop people from becoming old. And as we discover processes which are involved in, in Alzheimer's and maybe in osteoporosis and osteoarthritis and other problems, we'll find, I'm a big believer, we'll find a common link between those two. And with common link, there is a potential to come up with common therapeutic approaches which will address all these issues which affect quality of life very severely. So I think as we are aging, we're looking for solution for improving the quality of life and also to extend the number of years. And I think solutions for Alzheimer's will enable that and vice versa, other solutions will enable addressing Alzheimer's. And do you have a sense of where your own research is headed in this area? Well, I think for, for me, the exciting part is the brain now. And I can thank Mariana for, for that introduction that I find that area very fascinating. It's, it's one of the new frontiers of research, trying to understand more about brain. But uh, through that understanding, we're finding a lot more about the rest of the human body as well. So I think this, I think this may be a start of an era where we start looking and and I use the analogy that we brain is our top of our body and we draw arrows from brain down to all the other organ system. I think this is a time where we'll dry start drawing arrows in all random direction that everything is a system and we function as a system, we behave as a system and it's time to understand that system with a new angle coming in that is the brain. When, and moving forward, Mariana, you're sort of working with the environment around people. You're working inside people. How do the, And you've addressed this to some extent already, but how do you bring these two things together? Um, maybe well, you guys specifically or just researchers yeah. out there? Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's – I think they have a fancy name for that now. They call it epigenetics, which is really how the environment affects people and affects your, you know, your – your body and and you can't really dissociate the the, the gene and the environment I think um, so so I think that you know ultimately that's what we need to do it's the, the the bench to bedside idea 
is that, you know, you use the bench really to learn the mechanisms, but, you know, to Deepak's point, is it's, it's a systems approach. So you can go down to a, a little thing, understand that, but then you have to start coming out of that and start getting it more into the system. And eventually you have to look at how is the system going to react to the environment. Um, so I think that, and, and then you have to look at how the environment's gonna impact the system. Like for example, there's, there's this hypothesis that breast cancer, for example, is a childhood disease, that it's, it's an insult that you receive when you're going from pre-puberty to puberty, and then later in life, if you, for example, do shift work, which is an insult to your body, that imprinting that was done when you were a teenager comes out. So you need to start thinking, and I think NIH is thinking about that. It's really looking at from the time you were born, what's your environment, how are you raised, and how does that may lead to later on in life having Alzheimer's disease or having a disease. So I think that that, that longitudinal um, idea of looking at a person throughout life that's where we're going to go, I think, in the in the research, and that's you know that requires even more collaborations, more different skill sets, because you you need to start thinking about how the environment affects biology. Are there any big questions lingering out there that either of you are particularly fascinated by that we don't know about Alzheimer's that you hope we find out soon? I think there's a lot of things that we don't know about it. Um, personally, I think that um, we're looking at different ways to use light. Um, you know, there's a lot of people doing neurostimulation. We're looking at light as a tool for that. Um, and I think, you know, everybody's in search of a biomarker. Um, I don't think we have it. Um, one of the areas that I'm particularly very interested in learning more is the impact of sleep and sleep deprivation on the development of Alzheimer's. I think that there, in the past five years we learned a lot and how important it is. Um, you know, they're, they're now considering sleep as a risk factor for Alzheimer's and um, because it's basically in a very simple way when you sleep you clean up the debris that you accumulate during waking hours. And if you don't sleep, you're not cleaning up that debris. So you're allowing that to be accumulating in the brain, which is in the form of the plaques, which are, you know, the hallmark for the disease. So I think if people start understanding that, you can start thinking about changing behavior and changing what we're doing because it's a badge of honor nowadays for people not to sleep. Oh, I only got four hours of sleep last night, and, you know, I'm better than everybody else. And I guess we're learning that that's not the case. Um, so I think understanding that pathway and understanding what the relationship is, it's something that I'm personally very interested in and start looking at. And I think the other area is also using things like big data and, you know, artificial intelligence and uh, machine learning to, to understand how, say, sleep can affect uh, your Alzheimer's disease risk, for example. I mean, I'll piggyback onto that part is that Mariana brought up the the idea of, of cleaning up the damage when you sleep and, and from a very fundamental cellular point of view, we are interested in, in reactive oxygen species that how they will cause changes in, in uh, DNA, more specifically looking at the interaction between the mitochondrial DNA and the cellular DNA as a fundamental process that how it affects aging as a process and then how it has an impact on Alzheimer's leading downstream events like plaque buildup and loss of cognition. And I think the, the, the data uh, 
our data runs through this whole thing. It's the river which connects uh, everything. And I think we talked about the importance of artificial intelligence and machine learning. And then at Rensselaer, we are also very fortunate to have a large um, effort in the, um, in the form of Institute of Data Exploration and Application. And we've seen that with some of the uh, projects which have come out to link circadian rhythm to protein to cellular function all the way going to outside body. So data allows it to go from inside the body all the way to outside to a clinical uh, perspective. So I think that's an important part of the future. All right. Well, we'll look forward to it. Well, Mariana, Deepak, thank you both for coming and well, for spending some time with us today. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Why Not Change the World is recorded in the Solo Suite at NPAC, the Curtis R. Prem Experimental Media and Performing Arts Center at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. Thank you to the NPAC staff for their assistance, and thank you for listening.